Welcome to Said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. You can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org. In this special episode, we share a plenary address from our 2022 Sacra Doctrina Project conference on the topic of grace and sanctification. This is a plenary address given by Dr. Patrick Gardner entitled Grace and the City, Infused Moral Virtues and Common Goods. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Vos autem sedete in civitate, quodusque in duomini virtutem ex alto. Luke 24:49. In St. Thomas's account of our new life in sanctifying grace, as you know, the infused or supernatural moral virtues have a crucial role to play, but one particularly difficult to grasp as a part of the whole, at least so I have found, and the disagreements in scholarship give me some comfort in my puzzlement. We should be prepared for difficulty in grasping the workings of grace in us in all its forms, just insofar as it is supernatural. All the same, it's not surprising to me that, as it seems, the theological virtues on the one hand and the gifts of the Holy Spirit on the other should be, in some sense, better known more widely attested in the tradition. Aside from more distinct scriptural testimony, perhaps that's debatable, the theological virtues and the gifts each present a more clearly novel role in the new life of grace, but the infused moral virtues seem to duplicate virtues already accessible to our nature. It's especially hard to see how they relate to the acquired moral virtues with which they share a name. They are a consistent part of Thomas's teaching across his works, and yet the various texts are not easy to reconcile on the question of this relation. The difficulty increases when one sees that that particular question is entangled in a whole web of questions that have greatly exercised Thomists throughout the 20th century down to today. And I mean today, like at this conference. Um, And you'll see many of those coming up. I can't pretend to do justice to the question when I see it in that light. And in fact, considering to what extent the intellectual gifts I see represented before me have been already employed on one or another um, aspect of this web of questions, I feel obliged to warn you that what follows may seem to many of you moral theology very inadequately considered. That's a play on Jacques Maritain and his moral philosophy adequately considered You'll no doubt see that much of what I have to say, if you've read Maritain, The Man in the State, The Person in the Common Good, much of what I have to say could be taken as a defense of some of what Maritain had to say on these questions, though not all. It was not conceived of in that light, but I'll be glad if it does serve. Um, I also happen to think that Maritain's opposition to Charles DeConnick on the relation of the person to common goods has been greatly exaggerated. But I'll touch only incidentally on that topic. My concern here, and I'll also grant or warn you that um, I may seem hopelessly naive about the secondary literature, so much so by the end that I might seem to be trolling. That's not my intent. I, I really am that naive. My concern here is exclusively to try to understand this problem, the relation of the infused and acquired moral virtues after the mind of St. Thomas, 
and to presume consistency in what he wrote in the question on his lifetime unless and until it's shown that different texts simply cannot be reconciled by recognizing different aspects of a multifaceted complex reality. The aspect I want to emphasize in an effort to bring these texts, this teaching into order, is the character of the acquired moral virtues as ultimately political, as ordered to the bonum civile, the civil good or civic good, and so belonging to man insofar as he is a part of a whole, and helping him to realize the common good of that whole, the city. Yet we have here no lasting city. And it is the infused virtues, theological and moral, along with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which order us to the Jerusalem which is above, where the blessed saints and angels are also parts of a whole and enjoy beatitude as a common good. What I propose, with no little fear of being inadequate, both to the mind of St. Thomas and to those here in the room, the trusting in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is that if we see the acquired virtues as essentially and ultimately political, that the good towards which they work is perfective of an earthly city as an ordered whole, that the salvation of souls, the attitude for man, is a common good of a city in a different mode, which while infinitely more perfect is not a further perfection of the same city, not a whole to which the earthly city stands as part, but newly constituted. The coexistence of acquired and infused moral virtues will appear less strange, at least no stranger than the nature of man himself, peculiar creature that he is. The very existence of the infused moral virtues brings out the necessity, as I see it, of real but indirect subordination of civil society to the attitude. Indirect, not through any choice to give prominence or autonomy to a sphere outside the influence of grace. There is not. But as a consequence of the very way that grace works on and with this strange nature that God willed to create and redeem man, who because he is body and rational soul, lives as taking this from St. Thomas, the horizon of creation, but enters upon a new life of the soul through grace. So first part of the argument, the need for infused moral virtue. The end or good to which man is ordered by grace, St. Thomas often describes or distinguishes in terms of infused virtue. In the treatment of grace proper in the Summa Theologiae, near the end of the Prima Secundae, that shows up in the second article. Quote, but in the state of integral nature, as to the sufficiency of his operative virtue or operative power, man could have, through his natural powers, willed and done a good proportionate to his nature, as is the good of acquired virtue, but not a super-exceeding good, as is the good of infused virtue. The distinction between virtues here serves St. Thomas's distinction between two different ways man needs divine aid to do good in the fallen world, two forms or two effects of grace, first healing his ability to pursue the good of his nature crippled by sin. Second, a way he would have needed grace even without sin, elevating him to do works meritorious of his supernatural good. 
And when we first encounter it, this very notion of infused virtue can seem peculiar, even oxymoronic, especially if one comes in thinking of virtue chiefly as a good habit associated with habituation. If one, for example, is thinking of Aristotle's definition of moral virtue, which begins a characteristic marked by choice, a hexis, a habit, something one has from having chosen well often. Infused virtue would then be a good habit which does not come to be in us by habituation, is not marked by any choice of ours. It's tempting then to suppose, as some have done, that St. Thomas is just not using the word virtue this way when it comes to infused virtue. Perhaps he's really thinking in terms of the Augustinian definition of virtue, leaving Aristotle behind. I don't want to deny that there's some truth to that. Yet what we see in the Secunda Pars on the virtues and in corresponding texts throughout Thomas's career continues to have Aristotle's marks all over it. Indeed, the very argument that there must be such things as infused moral virtues, in addition to the theological, that the life of grace requires a justice, courage, and temperance, and their parts in us, that we can only receive immediately from God, the argument for that seems to me to depend on our considering virtue along the lines of the account we get in the Nicomachean Ethics. By along the lines, I mean in parallel. Following the logic that locates the good for man in activity according to perfect virtue, but in the light of a new life offered by grace. So how does the account of the good for man come to center on virtue? Well, by beginning with the end that is, with the account of the good as that at which all things aim, and asking what that is for man. That's how Aristotle begins the ethics. Nominally, at least, there is agreement, happiness. But it's crucial, both for what Aristotle is doing in the ethics and for my present purposes, that this account does not start with the end known determinately, as if to say, first, we will establish just what we are aiming at as men, and here it is. Now let us determine the means to get there. We begin with the formality of end. What would an end of man be like? In what thing or things this is to be realized for man is not assumed nor quickly achieved. It is, in a way, the burden of the whole inquiry, while at the same time making a beginning on the means. We approach it dialectically, considering what people mean by happiness, and then more analytically looking at what an end would have to be to be really end-like, complete, self-sufficient, best. Finally, since we're concerned with the good for man, we must look at his nature. If happiness is something he can work towards, then we must know what is the work of man. And in turn, we must know the makeup of a man, and principally that by which he works, what is in his soul. Thus, the inquiry becomes more determined as seeking out the bonum rationis, since reason marks all the works proper to man, and centering on virtue identified as that stable characteristic of soul by which a man's powers operate well according to reason. From all these, we get the working definition of happiness, a certain activity of soul in accord with complete virtue. But still, the whole remainder of the ethics is required to fill out what that definition means. And in a way, even more than the ethics, the inquiry continues on into the politics. 
Why do I say that? Because although the inquiry into what will fully realize the good for man does, by the end of the ethics, eventually identify one activity in accord with virtue, contemplation of the highest things, which alone, as a single activity, has the most of what happiness ought to have, that activity does not exhaust the formality of happiness as applied to man's nature. If he were of a higher nature, perhaps it would. Aristotle's own words indicate that. You know the passage, it's very famous. But, but a life of this sort would exceed what is human. For it is not insofar as he is a human being that a person will live in this way, but insofar as there is something divine present in him. And this divine thing is as far superior to the composite thing as its activity is superior to the activity that accords with the other virtue. Aristotle's own account of man's relation to this activity reveals that he is participating in something very imperfectly. But by that very fact, the account of happiness on these terms is incomplete if we do not add more that accords with him insofar as he is a human being. And this Aristotle does in the ethics. The other sort of virtue, that is moral virtue, the moral virtues which perfect him more properly as a man, body and soul, bringing all his powers under activity in accord with reason. His contemplative activity alone does not do that. And these virtues also bear notes of happiness in themselves without mere subordination as means to contemplation. He needs sufficient external goods for either of these sorts of virtuous activities. He needs friendship, which again has both independent notes of happiness so certain from our experience that we cannot deny them and without which those same virtuous activities are passing unlikely. And more, concerning the fate of one's children and other relations. Failing in any of these, Aristotle recognizes, seems to fail to fill out the account of what would make man happy. So if we demand a one-word answer to the question, what will make man happy according to this inquiry which is following his nature, we must be prepared that in different respects the answer must differ. In one sense, virtue is a good answer. In another, contemplation. But in a way, the most complete answer is a city. Only in and by a city could all the various requirements brought out by both the dialectical and the analytical examination of happiness be fulfilled given the nature of man the necessaries of life and other prerequisites for contemplation, the many additional prerequisites for moral virtue, friendship, the expectation of similar goods for ones near and dear, and some assurance that all these will last. That takes a city. That is why from the start, Aristotle called this a sort of political inquiry, right at the beginning of the ethics. Enter grace, and the same line of inquiry, now on a parallel track, leads us inexorably to the need for infused moral virtue. The first principle is still the end, the good at which man aims, but now the, if you will, open-ended formality of happiness is completed by a determinate end, an object in which, or in whom, that formality is exhausted. God is the summum bonum simply and now man can aim directly at him as object. There will be no remainder 
nothing lacking about the happiness achieved by a singular highest activity of the soul with respect to the highest object. None of the notes of happiness for man will be left behind by the visio dei. Having through one act what is best, complete, most self-sufficient, requires no other means, orders everything below, and includes or is friendship. But the man elevated to aim at eternal glory is still a man. We still have to look at his nature and powers to understand how this has become the good for him. If he is to aim at this, then something must be added to his powers of will and intellect so that he might know, if only partially, and desire this determinate end so far beyond human imagining. Thus, this elevation requires virtues, since man's powers need to be perfected so that they can work beyond their natural capacity, and such a perfection is what we call virtue. These, of course, are the theological virtues which have God himself as their object. But the man elevated to aim at eternal glory is still a man, composite and complex with various powers beyond will and intellect by which he does whatever he does in this life. To have only the new elevation to know and desire this end would leave lacking what we most want to know from such an inquiry, either on the natural or supernatural level. We want to know the end so as better to aim at it, arrange means to achieve it. But so far, we would only know that we now distinctly desire an end beyond all earthly means. We have only posed the great question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So one gift entails another, grace upon grace. The gift of the theological virtues, which have as their object the supernatural end, God himself would be fruitless for the life of man, the work he must do in the world, without further gifts, the infused moral virtues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The infused moral virtues are the stable characteristics in man's soul, whereby his powers might work well with earthly things as ordered to his supernatural end an end for which he had otherwise no means, a good towards which he could not advance one step by all the excellences proceeding from his natural powers. Yet the characteristics have a similar account to their corresponding natural ex excellences vis-a-vis -vis his supernatural end. They are parallel virtues, sharing names, but as St. Thomas says, differing in species as fortitude from fortitude and temperance from temperance. By each, it seems, the same power works well regarding the same or similar objects because it is subject to a higher rule. Right reason for one temperance, God himself for the other. For while right reason can, in knowing the sensible world and judging according to circumstances, identify the mean that will be conducive to natural happiness, no earthly power can judge in a given situation how to use these created things to get to heaven. Nothing in them as we know them could reveal that to us because it is not in themselves that they can serve as such means. The new rule of how to use this to get to God must be imprinted on the same powers that had, or could have had at least, the rule of right reason implanted on them. Now I'm in a position to lay out the problem more distinctly. In man's life of grace, what happens to the acquired moral virtues? How do they stand to the infused moral virtues, which are characteristics in the same power? 
Can there be courage next to courage, temperance next to temperance? If we were to take our lead from the natural and supernatural accounts of the good for man, the end at which he aims, and consider that his natural desire for the good has been not supplemented by a separate desire, but taken up, elevated to the prospect of eternal glory, so that no Christian could possibly aim at any complex of goods in this life whatsoever as his happiness and ultimate end. This would suggest at least two options to answer that question, but in fact seems to leave us on the horns of a dilemma insofar as we're trying to think of this according to St. Thomas. It might at first suggest that the acquired virtues are themselves taken up into the new life of grace and now serve the ultimate end of the attitude are redirected. But this is precisely what St. Thomas rejects in laying out the need for infused moral virtues. Only the latter are proportionate to man's supernatural end, so as to concern means towards that end. If that's untenable, it seems we're left with the option of unmasking the so-called acquired virtues as not really virtues at all, at least for the Christian life, so that they have no role to be explained vis-a-vis -vis the infused. But this will not accord, perhaps I should say it is very difficult to see how this can accord with St. Thomas's texts. Some have taken that, that route. St. Thomas does indeed say that for the Christian, only infused virtue is true and perfect virtue. Yet, far more often, and certainly in the same works as establish this point, I'm not just talking about commentaries on Aristotle, but on theological works, St. Thomas speaks of acquired virtue as virtue without demur off. He does not come to treat them as mere dispositions to say nothing as splendid vices. Indeed, in some places he will speak of the two sets of virtues acquired and infused as being relative to a twofold ultimate end of man, seeming almost to undo the principle from which we started. One such text from the disputed question on the virtues in common, no, pardon me, on the disputed question on charity. The bonum civile, the civil good, is not the ultimate end of the infused cardinal virtues of which we are now speaking, but of the acquired virtues of which the philosophers spoke. However we understand these passages, they cannot mean that one man's will could simultaneously tend towards both the bonum civile and the attitude, each as equally determinate and ultimate ends. That seems clear enough. How shall we understand them? I hope that the sketch I drew earlier from the ethics has justified my putting a lot of weight on that term bonum civile as the good of acquired virtue and similar terms that St. Thomas uses again and again when making this distinction between acquired and infused virtues. Sometimes he calls them the political virtues. These terms, civil, political, occur again and again in these texts, indicating, I think, that the chivis, or the polis, the city, is the formality under which these acquired virtues and their good are being understood. And I think that this is crucial to grasping the possibility of the coexistence of acquired and infused moral virtues, and that it would be deficient to understand this distinction as if by the term civil, St. Thomas really meant nothing more to the issue at hand than natural. 
by this oft-repeated term, St. Thomas is reminding us that man's natural good is a common good, the good of a city. And as a rule, a man must belong to two cities and therefore have two kinds of virtue. It may help to follow that with a foil or contrast. Um, this notion of two cities, which I'm drawing from a number of texts of St. Thomas, is probably clear enough to most of you, decidedly not that of the two cities most famous in the Latin Christian tradition proposed by St. Augustine in the City of God. This is not to say that I think Thomas and Augustine have a fundamental opposition in how they view human nature and supernatural destiny. That's another argument. The present claim is only that they are making very different distinctions between two cities, and the difference is instructive. Recall Augustine's uh, compact delineation of his two cities. Two loves, then, have made two cities. Love of self, even to the point of contempt for God, made the earthly city. And love of God, even to the point of contempt for self, made the heavenly city. In the former, then, it's wise men who live according to man have pursued the goods either of the body or of their own mind or of both together. Or at best, any who were able to know God did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, Romans. In the latter, second city in contrast, there is no human wisdom except the piety which rightly worships the true God and which looks for its reward in the company of saints, that is, in the company of both holy men and angels, in order that God may be all in all, 1 Corinthians. Now, the difference between these two distinctions of two cities lies not in their account of the heavenly city, but of the earthly. And again, I'm not treating this as an opposition, but calling attention to a difference in distinctions. For St. Thomas, the earthly city whose good is the bonum civile, identified with the good connatural to man, is also, even if only in principle, a city founded on love of God. St. Thomas teaches that even without grace, man by his nature would, if not for sin, have loved God above all things as the common good of all creation. Just because man is by nature a part of creation and knows by nature that the, part is great, the whole is greater than the part. And his ordering to the good of the whole of creation goes through the intermediate wholes to which he belongs more proximately, his species, and especially his city. That is to say, the very natural ordering to a city is itself part of his natural ordering to God. How far any number of earthly cities to date have failed signally in achieving this does not destroy the ordering. Now this is a necessary complement to the account of the good at which man aims according to his natural powers, sketched earlier from the ethics. That sketch concluded that this good can only be found in a city, but we must not hear that to mean that a man aims at a city in the sense that he wants to make use of a city to get the most of his private good from it. This complementary teaching is quite literally a complement to the ethics as Aristotle teaches it explicitly at the beginning of the politics. But I want now to try to understand these complementary teachings apply to each of the two cities the two cities I'm drawing from St. Thomas. So, to return to the principle, the common good is superior to and prior to the private good simply because the whole is greater than the part and prior to it 
for a natural whole. Easy as Euclid, right? Well, there may be some trouble about what counts as a part and why. Man is by nature a political animal. That is, he is a composite of body and soul who by nature belongs to a city or a polis, meaning here a perfect community, whatever its exact size or its contemporary name. I hope that the sketch drawn from the ethics indicated what it means to say by nature here and how we can call a city of some description the perfect community. Man belongs to a city by nature in that his natural desires move him towards goods and activities which can only be had in the city. He is not sufficient unto himself. And it's not just natural for him to form cities in the sense that he does so of his own accord from a principle within him. It is also that only in the city is the nature of man complete. Therefore, as Aristotle says, the city is thus prior by nature to the household and to each of us. Even the lower animals, now even the plants, show a similar desire in regard to their species. That they order their individual growth and work towards the perpetuation of their kind, even at the expense of maximizing individual life, shows that by nature, they desire the specific whole more than the part that is their individual existence. They know, so to speak, of course using that equivocally, that they are parts that they, they exist more in their species than they do separately. And Aristotle calls this, in Dayanama too, their appetite for sharing in the divine, their appetite for being always. Similarly, but with the great difference wrought by reason, man by nature desires the good of the city more than he desires his own individual good, because he knows at some level that he only really and fully exists in the city. This is from St. Thomas's Quodibro Questions, first collection, question four. We see that any part by a certain natural inclination works towards the good of the whole, even to its own danger or detriment. As is clear when someone exposes his hand to the sword, for the defense of his head, on which depends the health of the whole body. Whence it is natural that any part in its own way loves more the whole than itself. Whence also, according to this natural inclination, and according to political virtue, the good citizen exposes himself to the risk of death for the common good. But it is manifest that God is the common good of the whole universe and of all its parts. The good of a man is the common good of the city, and this good his will by nature desires imperfectly and would desire perfectly insofar as he acquired the virtue of justice. I think this is why Thomas can speak of the acquired moral, or I should say the acquired cardinal virtues, simply as political, and identify the connatural good of man with the bonum civile. There is a way in which these terms coincide. To say man as a citizen, though one can treat it, and Thomas does in certain considerations, man as a citizen could mean one secundum quid consideration of man among others, alongside considering man as an artisan. Unlike man as an artisan, man as a citizen is really the fullest consideration of man as man. 
Hence, again, St. Thomas can speak of the res humanae as the concern of political virtue, as if political and human meant the same thing. And, so, and he can say, and this is again from the disputed questions on the virtues, the good of man, insofar as he is a citizen, is that he should be ordered according to the city as to all things, quantum ad omnes. But what of the other city? The same text continues, but man is not only a citizen of the earthly city, but he is a participant, particeps, of the city of the heavenly Jerusalem, whose ruler is the Lord and whose citizens are the angels and all the saints. Man's supernatural good is also a city, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Eternal glory comes also from a common good, or rather, the common good. The same God who was his natural end and common good, insofar as a man was part of a natural city and thence part of the universe and thence ordered to the common good of the universe, but only naturally, at best, loved as the author of all being, now loved in himself. But how is a man constituted as a part of this whole? In this life? In his soul. The city which is the perfection of man's nature is precisely both necessary because of and constituted through man's being composite, being body and soul. But the city of God is quite different. A man belongs to it while still wayfaring by sanctifying grace as a quality of his soul. And his soul can belong to that city as a part of that city, even as his flesh and the relation between his soul and body remain subject to some of the consequences of sin. Moreover, his soul separated from his body will be part of that city at home, in patria, while his flesh decays. He may not yet be whole, but his soul is already part of a whole, and he is fellow citizen with angels. It seems that bodies are simply not required for citizenship in this city. I've not gone dualist um, or forgotten the resurrection. Bodies are certainly not incidental to us. We are not ourselves without them. Man will eventually belong to that city, body and soul, and so properly as man. But my point here is that the city constituted by grace has the ratio of a city in a manner quite different from that of the earthly city. It's not a city required by man's composite nature. In fact, it's a city to which man can belong precisely because God created in him a soul which exceeds the faculty of composite nature. Men, according to their nature, come together to form a city, and when together, in an ordered whole, as that whole they may attain the common good at which each one aims, insofar as he is a man, albeit they do not all partake equally. In the city constituted by grace, souls are united immediately to the summum bonum, know and love God immediately as the common good of all creation, and thereby they belong to a city. And as a consequence, in turn, of belonging to that city, they look forward to again being whole, reunited with their bodies. So again, no complex of goods must be brought together to make the city. Rather, by one contemplative act, everything that a city was to be for man is established. Jerusalem is a city strongly compact. 
Like every creature, even according to his nature, man has God alone as his end, and is ordered to God as the common good of the universe. According to the desire he has by nature, the extent to which he can approach this good and be perfected by it is mediated by communities, household, town, and neighborhood, of which, of which he is an integral part. Ultimately, city or country or kingdom, as the prerequisite for his having the kind of life which will bring his nature to perfection and thus bring out the similitude of divine goodness he was made to have. According to the new life and love he begins to have by grace, there is no such essential mediation. Man lives in this society, the city of God, as a wayfarer just because and to the extent that he loves God and ultimately will by the light of glory know God. And the communities to which he belongs due to his composite nature as an integral part, family, village, city, as much as they may be made somehow the instruments for his coming to eternal glory of the, coming to the eternal glory of their members cannot achieve eternal glory as an ordered whole. It is entirely possible, nay, we are virtually assured by scripture, that these earthly holes will be sundered with respect to the supernatural end. Two men will be in the field, one is taken and one is left. In one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. And the foundation for his capacity to belong to this city is no longer his composite nature, at least not in the same way. Rather, one part of that nature, his rational soul insofar as it exceeds the capacity of matter, is the basis for his elevation to citizenship in the heavenly city. So what does the consideration of two cities add to the problem posed concerning St. Thomas's teaching on moral virtues to restate the problem, acquired virtues do not, enable, do not enable us to act so as to attain eternal life. And that, the attitude, is all we want. So why do the acquired virtues continue to figure so largely in St. Thomas's moral theology? Well, what are we? We who want nothing but beatitude. We are human beings, that is to say. We are parts of a city, an earthly city. We cannot, as a rule, exist as men unless we are working in and working towards cities. But we will do so either well or badly. And if well, then it seems we are either acting by acquired virtue or in the midst of acquiring it. By no means is grace forgotten here. St. Thomas teaches, to go back to the first text I quoted, that without grace we cannot hope to achieve our natural end. So if an earthly city is doing well with respect to that end, it will not have been without healing grace. Yet this is also a reminder that Thomas distinguishes between two effects of grace, one healing our natural ability to pursue our connatural end, and another elevating us to work towards our supernatural end. And if we have distinct infused moral virtues as part of the latter effect, in what does the former effect consist morally? It seems to me that grace also restores our ability to work according to the acquired virtues and therefore to work towards an end which, while not absolutely speaking ultimate, is also not directly a means towards our absolute ultimate end. Of course, it must be in some way a means. 
if it is worth working towards at all. As soon as the supernatural end is revealed and made available to anyone through charity, it obviously transcends the civil good for him and renders that good desirable to him, if at all, only as a means. But the problem of regarding it directly as a means seems most evident from the different relations of part to whole seen in these two ends regarded as common goods. Man's natural ordering to the city is to the whole of which he is a part according to nature. It's for this reason that his natural desire does not make the city a means to his personal happiness, but rather his happiness consists in being part of the city. And St. Thomas insists on this because, as he says, no natural desire is perverse, and it would be for the part to love itself more than the whole. And moreover, if natural love were thus perverse, it would not be perfected but destroyed by charity. Yet when charity perfects this natural love of God more than self, it does not do so through the city as a whole, which has no capacity to receive charity as a whole en masse, even if deo valente, every single citizen receives it. So here is the strange position of a man. Body and soul, he belongs to a city to which he stands as part to whole. But through a part of himself, the soul, he belongs to another and transcendent whole to which that city does not stand as part. If through his natural desire for the good, he did not love the earthly city more than himself, that desire would be perverse. As in consequence, he would not love God more than himself, and his natural desire would be destroyed by charity. When that desire is elevated and perfected by charity, does he now love himself more than the earthly city? Does not seem the right way to put it not himself. He loves God as the object of beatitude, far more, of course, than the earthly city, more than he could have loved God as the author of the universe of which he was a part. And indeed, he should see that to attain that good, beatitude, even for his soul alone, would be worth more than all creation and all its natural goods. And if he can attain that, independent of the fate of the earthly city, then it seems he's leaving that city behind as a dispensable means. Yet what he is leaving behind has its own teleology that grace does not destroy. This is my formulation of the basis of indirect subordination of the civil good to beatitude. Maritain spoke of this in somewhat similar terms. He put it in terms of the indirect subordination of the body politic to the supernatural end of the human person. And then there was a great to-do with Taconic. <laughs> Having drawn it out of the accounts of the two sets of virtues, I would rather put this indirect subordination in terms of two cities, as Thomas himself speaks in several places. Now this is a complicated account, I recognize. It's not surprising that some have concluded that the best teaching to take from Thomas's allegedly inconsistent texts, even if this is not what he held, is that acquired and infused virtues cannot coexist as virtues according to which he operates. The view that they do coexist has been called unappealing for the way it seems to split up or compartmentalize a man. But if we are one part of a city here because of our nature, 
and yet part of another city here, through one part of our nature, as it seems we must be, then the split is not in the view, but in the man, and is attractive or otherwise according to the sort of work you take man to be. Let me bring two more texts to bear on this. And at first they're going to appear to complicate things further. I hope that they will, in fact, make things clearer and make a very abstract account of coexistence a little more concrete. In the disputed question on the virtues in common, in response to an objection, as he's establishing the need for infused moral virtues, the objection that infused moral virtues are unnecessary because charity can inform acquired virtue, St. Thomas responds, the act of acquired virtue cannot be meritorious except with an infused virtue mediating. This is the most explicit text I'm aware of on the coexistence of the two, two virtues and their interaction, yet we may very well wonder what it is supposed to mean, what it could look like. The act ordered towards the bonum civile, aimed at a worldly end, cannot be meritorious except with the mediation of another moral virtue lifting the man's soul beyond all worldly ends. Yet this does not resolve to saying that acts of acquired virtue can be ordered to the supernatural end. That was the objector's position. The second text will want a little more space to lay out. In the Summa Theologiae, while treating of the cardinal virtues, Thomas considers a fourfold division of virtue. Um, this was brought up in one of the uh, panels this morning, taken from Plotinus by way of Macrobius. Is it fitting to divide each of the cardinal virtues into political virtues, purgatorial virtues, virtues of the purged soul, and exemplar virtues? Now, this might seem at first to be a, a geometrical increase in our problem. <laughs> How many different fortitudes could there possibly be? Um, but in fact, I think, or I'm, I'm going to claim that this division conforms to the one we've been considering, not further multiplying human virtues, but putting them sub specie tenitatis. The exemplar virtues are not human at all. They are the types of human virtues as existing in the divine mind. That's simple enough. Then St. Thomas drops down to the first level and explains the political virtues, the lowest rung in this Plotinian division, in the way that I think you would expect given my account thus far. Because man, according to his nature, is a political animal, virtues of this kind, as they exist in man, according to the condition of his nature, are called political. That is, man, according to these virtues, rightly lives, or stands rightly in carrying out human things. Again, political and human seem to be treated as synonymous. Okay, so we've got exemplar virtues and political virtues. What then is the other two? But because to man, going on with the quotation, but because it pertains to man that he should also draw himself to divine things so far as he can, as even the philosopher says in Book 10 of the Ethics, it is necessary to posit certain middle virtues in between the political, which are human virtues, and the exemplars, which are divine virtues. And these middle virtues can be considered either on the way to divine things or at the end of this movement to the divine. 
On the way, they are called the purgatorial virtues. So, for example, this sort of prudence despises all earthly things for the contemplation of divine things and directs every thought of the soul to divine things alone. And this temperance relinquishes insofar as nature can endure it whatever the use of the body requires. These are the purgative virtues. At the end of the movement, the virtues of the purged soul are the same virtues as they belong to the blessed, no longer part of the striving, but of the resting in the vision of the divine mind. It seems to me that whatever was Plotinus's access to this division, the purgatorial virtues, as St. Thomas adopts them, are what he means by the infused cardinal virtues that come with grace. If that is so, we may be taken aback by this expression of the work of the infused moral virtues under charity, just what it can mean for virtues to find the mean apt to lead to eternal life. On this description, these infused virtues do not, per se, promise any sort of earthly accomplishment. Say, for example, the grace-filled means whereby man might actually have a just society on earth. They are that whereby a man can set everything on earth at naught. If we think that the achievement of the bonum civile in a good society is indeed an important means for men who would, through the church, work towards eternal glory, still it does not appear that this is work properly according to infused virtue that will build such a city. That is the work of political virtue, if only in a man healed by grace. Grace perfects and does not destroy nature, and sometimes the result is more complex than we may anticipate, because we are adding to the complexity of human nature the further complexity of two different relations to divine causality, which are inherent in grace and nature. This is precisely, as I see it, the excellence of the Plotinian scheme, what, attract, what made it attractive to St. Thomas to present a view of the whole, albeit one that he had to fill in. God's exemplar virtues are the source of all virtue. Man receives virtues from this exemplar in two distinct ways. One, insofar as he is created as a part of the world with a political nature, and in that fashion is continually moved by God through his nature towards political virtue. Another separate participation insofar as he is called out of the world by grace to be drawn towards God himself. And while the latter is clearly the superior virtue, the former does not derive from it or relate to it as the imperfect to the perfect in the same essence, as do relate the purgative, purgative virtue and the virtue of the, of the purged soul. Rather, the political and the purgative virtues derive separately from God as exemplar of all virtues. So we need acquired virtue even in the life of grace in order to go on being the creatures that God made for the sake of redeeming some by grace. And insofar as it lies in us to prepare ourselves for grace, which is to say, not without the working of grace already. St. Thomas says that 
if we use to the utmost our natural love of God above all things which flows through the city, it would be the highest preparation for grace. The infused moral virtues in their role as purgative take as a given our movement towards goods of this world, and not this movement as sinful, but as a natural good for man, and also not as simple impulse, but with its own ordering of means to relative end. That is, it takes as a given movements we make potentially according to acquired virtue, and without destroying it, relativizes it, gives us the power of detachment from it. By the infused moral virtues, we have the power to offer up that work, abandon that work, either as a matter of a life's vocation, or daily, interiorly, in the lay state. Or again, as it may be, by them we may have the strength to continue to devote our energies to that work on earth, even when it seems hopeless, even when it is least desirable and offers least human prospect of success because things are falling apart. Not doing it now because we see how we will be successful in achieving the civil goodwill, but because God wishes us to do so for the salvation of our souls. We find ourselves as parts. It is, not, it is given to us, not a matter of choice, that we come into the world with debts and dependencies in the world, which are not cut off from God, but mediated through created wholes or communities of which we were integral parts. And it is through them that we come to realize what a common good is, even if we never reflect adequately on it. We come to know, with or without reflection, that our happiness lies in some community, and that there is such a thing as an activity which cuts the knot between my good and thy good, because there are activities which make us happier just by making us more a part of a whole even if we never call it these activities according to political virtues. I'm sure no one uses the word political that way today. But without these, without this natural access, however impaired, we would be crippled in coming to grasp just what we have been elevated to by grace. Indeed, how did we know what virtue meant when we called infused virtues, theological or moral virtues? How does St. Thomas use that term and concept to distinguish them from grace simply and from the gifts of the Holy Spirit? It seems we know what virtue is first from what is better known to us, from acquired virtue, even if in the end we find that it does not bear the name of virtue most perfectly. That does not mean that we can say that it is false. Similarly, in grace, we see more of what is promised as our supernatural end through the intelligibility of the natural end, even if most of the time what we're seeing is how far we have failed to attain what we were made for by our own powers. It's only through acquired virtue that we could understand that what we ultimately hope for supernaturally is also to belong to a city. conclude. I'm aware of many possible objections to what I've said. 
I hope it will be taken as it was intended, as put forward tentatively in the course of real doubt as to how to follow the mind of St. Thomas here. And I welcome questions and objections, corrections that will help me to do that. I'm going to end by inviting some more. Even if this is a good approach, I feel that it is a fine line with perils near on either side. There's a reason, obviously, that St. Augustine described the city of man as he did. And while I do not think he was addressing, in principle, the earthly city ordered to St. Thomas's bonum civile, as St. Thomas considers that, it's not hard to see how a glance at what any number of earthly cities have actually done could lead one to assimilate the earthly city without grace to the city bent on itself. We have Babel as the great primordial warning against an undue insistence on the integrity of the ordering of our natural powers to building a city. If we do not recognize that that natural ordering is ultimately to God. On the other side, there's also a peril that is a sort of fideism or analog to fideism. If there is simple subordination of the bonum civile and the acquired virtues are evacuated under grace, taken to an extreme, there are not two cities but just one, and there is no intelligibility to our moral life except what is deduced from our supernatural end. Now at first that sounds right. What else would we want? But just as fideism will lead to awful abuses of reason, because whatever it may claim, we cannot escape reasoning about and from matters of faith because to reason is our nature. So a simple subordination can lead to awful abuses of the created goods of this world because we cannot deduce from our supernatural end how to use them as means. We have in the sacraments, of course, precise instructions for using material means as the instruments for grace consistently and accord with our intention, but that simply proves the rule. We could not have deduced the seven sacraments from our ordering to the supernatural end. We had to be given them. By the infused virtues, we can indeed use created goods well in general as means to beatitude, but only under the movement of the Holy Spirit not because our ordering to the supernatural end, which we cling to in faith but cannot see, gives us a new and visible program for building earthly cities. Indirect subordination between the activities of the virtues is mirrored in the earthly powers charged by God with directing man towards their respective ends. Not separately, indeed, one as a means to the other, and yet not in a direct subordination for the reasons I've proposed. Perhaps this will make more intelligible a rather notorious passage at the end of St. Thomas's commentary on the second book of the sentences. Objection. This is a question concerning obedience. Objection. The spiritual power is higher than the secular. Therefore, if a greater power ought to be more obeyed if more obedience is due, the spiritual prelate would always be able to absolve from the precept of the secular power, which is false. I respond, it should be said that a superior and an inferior power can relate in two ways. One, in that the inferior power arises 
wholly from the superior. And then the whole virtue of the inferior is founded on the virtue of the superior. And then, simply and in all things, the higher must be more obeyed than the lower. But again, a superior and an inferior power can so stand to one another that both arise from one supreme power, which has subjected one to the other according as he wishes. And then one is not superior to the other except in those things in which it has been placed above the other by the supreme power. And in those things alone is the superior power more to be obeyed than the inferior. And so, to the fourth objection, the objection with which I began, it should be said that the spiritual power and the secular are each drawn from the divine power. And therefore, the secular power is under the spiritual, uh, under the spiritual just insofar as it has been put there by God, namely in those things which pertain to the salvation of the soul. And therefore, in those things, the spiritual power is more to be obeyed than the secular. But in those things which pertain to the bonum civile, the secular power is more to be obeyed than the spiritual. According to Matthew 22, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. Why? especially given what St. Thomas writes in On Kingship. Why isn't the bonum civile simply one of those things which pertains to the salvation of the soul, which would then collapse this? It cannot be if there is such a thing as a human nature to be elevated by grace. It cannot be our work towards the bonum civile cannot be more than the preparation, the grounds, because it is really our work, which is to say it is ultimately God's work with us, moving us through and in the nature he gave us. But the salvation of souls will be his work upon this ground, in us, without us, though not without our cooperation. So we must stay in the city, which is no lasting city, awaiting, beseeching, and please God, continually receiving his power from on high. Thank you for your patience.